So earlier today, I had the, uh, the great uh, opportunity to hear why lizards shouldn't bungee jump. To hear that debridement wasn't in fact an act of removal from a wedding reception, and to understand why I need to blanch my asparagus after cooking it to retain its uh, crispness. I am Graham Durant, and I have the pleasure and privilege of being the director of Questacon uh, here in Canberra. Thought. So tonight's event presents the opportunity to hear from a great Australian scientist, doctor, humanitarian, and mother of six. Uh, Dr. Fiona Wood is an Australian living treasure, an awardee of the Order of Australia, and a former Australian of the Year. She's dedicated to her clinical practice education and research into burns, trauma, and scarless healing. And she and her team, and uh, she's you know, very quick to acknowledge the, the nature of the, of the team in, in the work she does. Uh, they've developed the uh, Royal Perth Hospital Burns Unit into one of the most respected burns units in the world. And Fiona has helped to save countless lives, reduce disfigurement for many, and inspired a nation. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce somebody who's regularly cited as Australia's most trusted person, uh, please welcome tonight's guest speaker, Dr. Fiona Wood. Well, thank you very much indeed for such a kind introduction, and uh, trust me, I'm a doctor. Uh, and thank you very much indeed, all of you, for being here this evening. By being here this evening, you're going to be supporting our research in the Macomb Foundation, and for that, I give you all a heartfelt thanks on a personal level, as well as from the whole team. And so I thought tonight I should start and explain really why we have started really looking at asking for people to support us in our research. Because the one thing that does keep me up at night is working out how I can pay the scientists and keep the whole team together. A team that is an extraordinary privilege to work with, for and lead. And so I thought I'd start and tell you really about my, my passion and my passion to try to understand the impact that the injury has on the brain, and in my particular case, burn injury. And so for doing that, I'm going to tumble back in time to uh, England in the late 1970s. I mean, I was at medical school. I realized, girls, that if you wanted to be a surgeon, and there was one of 12 in my medical school who were women, then I had to do something to set myself apart. It was so exciting at the time with respect to plastic surgery. I could see what the, they were doing things that were different. They were doing things which required a lot of research and a lot of courage. Things like the microsurgery sort of boom was coming, taking the muscle off the back or, or off the tummy and re recreating breasts after cancer or off the back and wrapping it around a young man's leg after he'd had a motor vehicle accident, motorbike accident, such that that leg wasn't amputated. You know, things were really, really changing. Replanting digits. And, and amongst all of this, there was a group in the US who developed what we call tissue expansion where they put under balloons underneath the skin. And for example, if I have a little child who has been burnt on the scalp, be, their hair follicles would be damaged. 
And the scar is such that they will be bald on their, uh, all the way through their life. And so what we do is we put a balloon under the other side where the hair is normal. And we'll blow this balloon up over a period of maybe three months. The longest time I've ever had an expander in someone was actually ten months. And it was an operation that was the culmination of five years' work, where we'd taken a little bit of scalp that had hair on, and five consecutive summers, we put in an expander, three months blew it up, took out a bit of scar and laid it down. Then go to uni for a year, come back and do the same. And then the last year, she had the thing in the whole year and took home schooling, home tutoring. And so then we would have to get the whole of the scalp covered with hair. Now, this all started in the late 70s. And there I am, a fly on the wall, watching it all. And so as I got into the, uh, so the sort of early 80s, in 1981, I was a surgical um, houseman in St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School in August of 1981 was my first day as a doctor. And I said to, earlier to some of the girls that my most defining memory of that day was I wore a dress that was far too short and didn't do that again. <laughs> Fortunately, my white coat was longer. And so... By 1981, I was a doctor, but I was very focused on surgery. And then by the mid-85, I was very focused on plastic surgery, and I'd seen this tissue expansion, creation of new skin, with the right characteristics, hair, sweat glands, and nerves. Now, we were told that if you expanded this skin, if you could put a balloon under there and take three months, it was like a pregnant abdomen. And you would actually stretch it out. Uh, but your nerves were static. Your nerves couldn't respond to that, and so you would decrease your quality of sensation. Well, I did an interesting clinical trial. I had six children. I had a very big pellet, and up, down, like a balloon that was blown up, let down, blown up, let down. So what everybody does when they're pregnant, you do two-point discrimination and threshold to stimulation with von Frey hairs on your abdomen, don't you? I mean, doesn't everybody? And, and so I was able to follow this sensation changing on my abdomen. Did you know what? It didn't change at all. And I'm thinking, this is really interesting. And more, I was, I was trying to you know, do a, a blind trial. <laughs> How many do I feel? You know? And so I thought, well, this is fascinating because I still feel it exactly the same way that I felt when it was flat trim, taught terrific six-pack. And now this is this bloated balloon. It still feels exactly the same with the same quality. So I went to and examined our patients and did a trial where I, I, I tracked how, as it blew up, the nerves responded. I did a, a, a trial on a small animal model where we, Dow Corning, were very kind and created little tissue expanders. And so I was able to do single hair follicle stimulation, so, so single neuronal uh, stimulation of the T11 of this animal and demonstrate for the first time that the nerves were plastic within the skin. And the nerve fibers actually responded to this energy of this expansion and actually increased in density, and increased in absolute number. And I thought how fascinating that the nervous system has the ability to respond all the way down to our periphery in a way that we had never seen before. And I'd like you to park that thought because that's kind of what I did. 
It was the first paper I ever uh, wrote and got published, and I was very proud of it, 1986. I'll send any of you if you like, copy. Really, yeah. And I was very proud of it because some t- uh, uh, years previously, as a medical student, I had been very remiss, and I'll share this again for the youngsters. I went to India, and I, I did a research project in the malnutrition in pregnancy. I measured hemoglobin A1c as a measure of calorie nutrition uh, and sugar nutrition, and I measured retinol binding protein as a measure of protein nutrition, and I did all this work, and I sent it into the journal, and it was sent back, oh, you need to revise this, this, and this, and I thought that meant no. And I never published that paper, and it irritates me, even today, that I didn't finish something. And it itches the back of my head. Finishing is so important. It's not been done until it's finished. Driving that to finish. So when I say I park that thought, you'll know why it's always been at the back of my brain, itching away, trying to understand how the nervous system responds to injury. As I've moved forward through my career and into plastic surgery, I became very focused on the skin cells. The skin cells were the the thing we had to have. We have to have our epidermis. We have to have that waterproof layer of our skin in order to to stay alive. If we're not waterproof and we can't uh, protect ourselves from invasion of bacteria, it's game over. So we became very, very focused on achieving skin cover, wound cover, as fast as we could. And so that was a track that's, you know, 20 years in the making. We started our laboratory, a skin laboratory, in in Princess Margaret Hospital, which is the kids' equivalent to Royal Perth. And we started that with a telephone grant in 1993, Marie Stone and myself. And now, almost 20 years later, we're still in process, still making it better. But it took us a track down a, a path that detracted me from the nervous system. And so... It was fantastic to me when about 2005, six, we had this young fellow who had done work experience with me, who I know is a mom, he was at the school with my kids, and said, I want to do a B-Med Sci, I want to do a B in... Uh, and we were just at the stage where we could take on students like that for a year, and I said, what I'd like you to do is to look at the nerves in scar, compare them with the nerves in normal skin. Because I've got a feeling that we need to understand what drives our shape. Now, as we all sit here today, we've self-organised to our shape. You know, in all different shapes. But we're clearly not mice or horse shape. You know, we are human shape. What has driven us to that human shape? So I think, I go to my genetics colleagues, what is it in the genome that is different from a horse, different from a mouse, different from us, that gives us our shape? Because if we knew that, and I could actually somehow turn that on, when somebody is devastatedly injured, we could drive them back to their normal shape. And they go, oh, Fiona, it's not that simple. And I go, okay, fine. Back to the drawing board. It sounded like I'd got the hole in one because it was someone else's problem and they could fix it. So genetically, we have the information, but what drives genetic expression? And so what gives us our shape? So then... We, we said, well, maybe it's in the nervous system. Maybe I went along to uh, some of my mathematics colleagues in Curtin University, and they said, oh, we can do this mathematics, this hierarchical mathematics. And if you tell us uh, the sex and the first semester mark of our math students, we can tell you with 98, 98% reliability, or is it one of those mathematical maybe terms for reliability, we can tell you 
what they're going to get after three years. I thought, oh, gosh, you couldn't save them all the pain. You know, <laughs> because we can predict what you're going to do. That was fascinating, fantastic. Well, can you tell me? Looking at the histology of skin, and looking at the histology of scar, can you tell me whether the skin or the scar is chaotic or not? Because if it's not chaotic, can we mathematically describe it so that then we can use mathematical description to regenerate so that we get to the best, back to where we were instead of the scar? It's not that easy, Fiona. Okay, fine, right. But I've met some very interesting people who are very uh, continue to collaborate with us because then I think, right, okay, well, let's get back to this nervous system. So young James took biopsies from this, uh, this skin of a scar and matched site. So if I've got a scar here uh, from a burn, all of them at least two years old and none uh, burnt on the other side, he found that the nerve density was exactly the same on both sides. But this, the scar is statistically significant in the two-point discrimination and the threshold of stimulation with our hairs decreased. Yet the nerve density was exactly the same. And he goes, the results are wrong. I said, James, the results are never wrong. It's just the interpretation. We just have to stand back and think about it. Let's work it out. Let's understand it. And our hierarchical mathematics guys came in. They said, well, looking at the nerve density and the changes in, the, in your receptor staining, they're not linking up. Why not? Maybe because we cover them in dresses. Maybe because we don't stimulate. Who knows? We're still working on that. But he, then he was shaking his head and he says, you know, but the really, really perplexing thing about this whole business is that if you've got an 80% burn, the 20% of you that's not burned is less nerve density than the 10%, if you've got a 10% burn, the 90% that's not burnt is a higher nerve density. And, at this, and they were all shaking their heads. And at this point, I'm doing backflips around the room. You know, it was a very bad sight. Go, yes, eureka. Because the extent of the injury has a, a direct impact on the nerve density. It's a direct impact on normal skin. On the flux, the state of flux in our normal nerves, which are plastic and changing all the time. Maybe, maybe this is a clue. And of course we tried to get that published and it's radical and it's out there and no, and they, they, we, we got the rejection which was no and it meant no, uh, not the revise it. And so that rejection was okay and you send it to another journal and you tumble down and they go no. Uh, because how do you know what the nerve density was before the injury? And that's really tricky. How can I tell you what your nerve density is before the injury? I can't, so we have to revert uh, to an animal model where we demonstrated that within two weeks, with a very small burn of less than one centimetre diameter, the nerve density on the whole back was decreased within two weeks. Now it's published. But why? M the, going back to the mathematical colleagues, they're going, you know, self-organisation has to be driven. When you're in computer systems, you have to have a three-dimensional spatial information. You have to have this, the central core that's responding to the, the, the self-organizing feedback. So I said, well, could the brain be the th repository of the three-dimensional spatial information that is linking with the surface this giant receptor that's skin, such that if we retain our patterning in our brain, we can drive ourselves to a normal shape. It's not that easy. <laughs> so I, let, I worked out that we had some people in, that understood transcranial magnetic stimulation. 
and brain mapping using that tool. So you can go along and you can have your brain uh, mapped using stimulation on your hand, and so you can map where the hand is on your brain. And before this was done on any of my patients, I went along. Uh, this was only about five years ago now, five years, four actually. And there I was. I said, well, do on me because then we can understand that uh, I can understand the logistics and I can understand what I'm asking my patients to consent to. So I'm sitting there and I'd had a tooth out the previous day, which was a little uncomfortable. And uh, so on your homunculus, on your brain pattern, your face is very close to your hands. So the electrodes are on my hand and they're trying to, to stimulate my hand with stimulating my brain and my face is going completely bananas. I look like I'm in one of those, what is it, gurning competition, face pulling competitions, and they're looking at me because I don't know these people very well. You know? So it's one of us about third meeting. And they're looking at me as if I'm a little bit strange because my face is going contorting. And I said, just, I think we need to hang on because I had a tooth out yesterday and I think maybe that's influencing what's going on. So we'd switch sides, my hand moved beautifully, could map my hand, yet my, the pain of my tooth, of my face, had swamped all the patterning on my brain with that, for that 24 hours. It had obliterated it. Is this another clue? Is this a clue that when we are massively injured, that our brain patterning changes, our plasticity within the central nervous system changes as a result of the absolute massive insult of the, and the pain, such that as it comes to recover, maybe the pattern is, is, is distorted. So we have had 13 patients that have been burnt many years before, single upper limb, so we've got a reference point with the other limb, and we've seen, yes, in fact, the pattern is distorted. So we're in this situation where we try to understand how we can drive this self-organization using the power of the mind, which is awfully surgical, isn't it? And I've seen people choose in, to, to live or die in my environment. I've seen people cope with, with the impact of trauma in a, in a variety of ways. I've seen people with, with diabetic neuropathy, with Alzheimer's, with spinal cord injury, with spina bifida, all heal burn from burn wounds and they heal differently. So this whole neurological drive and to understand the natural history of what's happening is what you're helping with by being here tonight. Because one day we will understand the impact of that change in the central nervous system related to the body site. And we will understand how to use it in order to improve the quality of outcome. We've already started using what they call the mirror box, where if I've got a, a, a burnt right hand, I put it in a box, on the outside is a mirror, I move my good hand, my brain thinks my bad hand is my, my good hand, and my good hand gets better quicker. Now, isn't that just incredible? Yeah, and I was thinking, how, trying to understand this embedded virtual reality has driven us to see people who can do uh, what's it, avatars and we've left them pondering can you create an avatar of this burn patient who is, looks at themselves moving and is whole can we change healing patterns by that I don't know the answer to that question but I sure think it's exciting to find out because the actual drive to, to, from a functional point of view will actually try, change in my hypothesis I guess and my uh, my observations to this point will change the scar that is worn for life.
getting back to this understanding that the quality of the outcome must be worth the pain of survival. So that is a, the area of research that we're going into at this point in time that is novel. Nobody is looking at this internationally in the, in the field that we're in or in other trauma. Chronic wounds, uh, chronic pain and, uh, from a uh, phantom limb sort of uh, pain, certainly they're using mirror box and things like that, trying to brain train from repetitive strain injury and things like that. Coming back to the acute, well, wouldn't it be better to deal with it acutely so that you didn't get into that problem? And so we've collaborated with people in that field as well. I think that's a, one uh, area that I'd like you to really think about because you know, the power of the mind is something that we just don't understand. And we get an increasing sort of like taking layers off the onion, I guess. Increasingly, uh, our knowledge is becoming greater. And in such, as we've talked about earlier today, the more you know, the more we, don't, we know we don't know. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't look. That means we should look with even more heads, with even more intellect, with especially young intellect that can actually drive this forward into the future. And so I'd like to put that with another, in another context, with understanding an area that we've been involved in that was, again, around a patient. In 2003, I had a patient, an eight-year-old boy, who had an 80% body surface area burn. He survived beautifully. We were all very happy. Folks, him. He sent us pictures of him riding horses, paddling canoes. And then 18 months later, he came to clinic, and it was clear to me as I walked across the room that the tightness of his scars on his right-hand side was due to a tumour underneath them, not the scars themselves. And he was unfortunate in that he had a severe and complicated malignant cancer that... Uh, it was, not, uh, was impossible to treat. And so he died at the age of 11. And I think one of the things, questions I was asked earlier tonight is how stressful the job is and what we do. And I think, well, if I think how, bad, you know, how difficult that is for me, you only have to spare a second to think about how difficult it is for his family and friends. And so I feel very strongly that all information, all experiences need to be understood and need to be utilised. And I, kind of, I feel with the recognition I have to this point comes responsibility. And in his case, I have the responsibility to find out everything I can about that so that the next eight-year-old boy lives to be 80. And so I went around the world to my colleagues and asked, is this, is this changing? Are we ch because we... We're treating patients with much bigger and bigger and bigger burns. Are we changing things here? A couple of my older guys go, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe there is something. So now we're in a project where we're linking the cancer database in Western Australia with the burns database. And we've been able to, the data linkage is a very powerful tool. I knew that in Western Australia, Quebec and Oxford, they were the three places in the world that had data linkage. I mean, Fiona Stanley in WA has been, has been the prime driver of that. I knew that those were the three places in the world, and since WA was kind of local, <laughs> you know, I said, right, guys, you have a piece of my jigsaw. You can answer this question for me. And it's taken a little while, and we've managed to get an NHMRC grant, and we've got 24,000 patients over 26 years have been burned. And we're linking that with the cancer database, linking it with the other databases around mental health. Around, we will be able to tell you when we have the manpower, 
that if a girl is, is burnt as a child, will she have a caesarean section later? We'll be able to tell you all sorts of detail around the impact of trauma. And one of the things we discovered was that if you were burnt by the age of four, you have a tenfold risk of being dead by the age of 20. And that was a very sobering statistic, very so. We don't know why. We don't even know if it's true, because we've got so much more work to do to really nail that, to be absolutely categoric that it is true. A third of those children were related, deaths were related to other injuries. Is it environmental? Is it, there's lots and lots of issues around that. A third were related to infection, and a third were related to cancer. Are we getting closer to putting these pieces of this jigsaw together? We go back to the nervous system. Cancer takes up space. It distorts space. How is it perceived in our brain? How, I know uh, I have a, a colleague in Boston who did brain scans on women after they had mastectomies and saw the, dis the changes in the brain scans related to that body site. Are we closer to actually putting lots of pieces of the jigsaw together? So if we can find that there is something that is changing in our immune system related to a trauma, can we fix it? Well, we have people who treat HIV AIDS, who have got an enormous experience in maintaining the bone marrow of those patients. Can we learn and take their learnings and put them in our trauma environment? There's a lot of I don't knows yet. But I do know that by being collaborative, by keeping my blinkers off, by seeing what others are doing, I can then be the conduit to the individual that is in front of me on a daily basis. Because I see suffering on a daily basis and I think it's my privilege to do what I can to alleviate that. As I say, with, this re with recognition comes responsibility and duty to always learn from today's experience to enhance tomorrow's performance. I think it goes across whatever we do, whatever field we're in. We have to think about what is it that I can learn today? What is it that will make this place better tomorrow? And so I guess, uh, and as I sort of move to answer your question, or your questions, which would be much more difficult for me, though I'm sure Genevieve will protect me. <laughs> I think, well, you know, what has put me in this privileged position? And I'd like to share some of my thoughts with you that, of around 2005. 2005 was an extraordinary year, and I'd have to say thank you. I say thank you to all Australians who educated me that year. And it was a, it was a, a bubble. I still can't believe it happened to me. And so I was asked a number of questions. I was asked, one of the funniest ones was, oh, you are Australian, aren't you? <laughs> they go, oh, does it matter? In my best Yorkshire accent. <laughs> the person went pale. I go, it's all right, crash trolley. <laughs> no, it's all right, I won't have to resuscitate you. I am. I think one time before it, I think Johnny Farnham was, very rapidly became Australian. Uh, and, and then I was asked, what is it that I'd like to share with Australia? And tonight I've shared, uh, I, I, I hope I haven't bored you with the, what I think is really exciting science. And science that is way beyond really the 500 patients that are burning in Western Australia each year. Science that requires a lot of energy, a lot of technology, a lot of collaboration that actually will make sure that as we go forward our quality of life is improved and that we enjoy the health in our health system that we've, we've come to get used to be used to. And so really, taking basic science to the bedside is where I live. 
That's, I, I am very lucky. I have you know, two parents who were focused on education. An education such that you get up in the morning and you have the choice to do what you enjoy. And you know, I, I am in that space. So I'm very, very fortunate. But how could I share that with Australia? Well, I think we all need to understand that we need to take responsibility for our health, our wellness and our education. Because if we take responsibility for the choices we make, we will have a health system that will be healthy into the future, rather than a runaway train heading straight for a brick wall. That is, over-services in some areas and under-services in others. And so I was asked to put my money where my mouth was. And the point of the asparagus today, uh, cooking the asparagus, was all about Burns First Aid. So today I'm going to teach you Burns First Aid in the next 30 seconds so you can all change the health budget. Because tomorrow you may be in the shopping centre and you see a cup of black, black coffee is obviously worse than with sh sugar and milk because it cools it down. Black coffee going down the chest of a child. You remove the clothes, you cool the burn, water off the table, napkins, keep it cool, 15 to 18 degrees, no ice. Ice gives you a frost burn on top of the heat burn, makes it worse. It's comfortable, goes numb, but it's worse. So cool the wound with clean water, 15 to 18 degrees for 20 minutes and you will impact on the health budget. Because that child will then heal probably with dressings, without surgery. Uh, when they come for their six-week check, you've got to look at it in the light to see where it was. Because in a scald injury particularly, it's the most effective. You will reduce it by 80%. Very good science to name New South Wales and Queensland. Seriously solid science. Changes programmed cell death by cooling the wound. So you salvage tissue. The alternative is dressing, surgical intervention, pressure garments for somewhere between 6 and 24 months. And when that child is 16 and wants to go to school ball with the mates, then you do plastic and reconstructive surgery, our scar revisions as we do later. The cost differential is 1 to 20. And that's being very conservative. So you all now can change the health budget. If you all do first aid courses, you can change the health budget because you'll start the heart, you'll stop the bleeding, you'll cool the burn. So it's taking that personal responsibility. And so, in 2005, I had the privilege to speak to many, many, many people. I was up in the Northwest, in a country that I think is fantastic, and I saw things in our country that I couldn't believe were there. And the expectation that I could do something about it was seriously confronting. The expectation that I could contribute in some way where many others had failed was daunting and overwhelming. And I'd met one lady repeatedly during that day, and that night we were on the beach, going to Broome, Kananara, Kalumbaroo. We're out of Kalumbaroo on the beach, way on the top end. A big, bar, big bonfire and all the women, and daughters, granddaughters, I had my two daughters with me, and I looked at this woman and I said, gee, what motivates you? I'd had the stuffing knocked out of me. And she looked me straight in the eye for the first time of the day and said, to do the best for my children, what about you? What we do today, our choices today, will be history tomorrow. We can choose our history. Again, as I've said many times, we're all unique and special. I'm very fortunate, as, as a result of my education and training, I'm a surgeon, but if I don't operate, it is wasted. How many people have gifts they don't share? How many people have energies, unique energies, that they hide under a bushel? I say to the, ch the kids when I speak at the schools, 
how many of you have done something less than your best so everybody around you feels more comfortable? Everybody has examples. Isn't that sad? And then I say, how many times have you done something in the raw, out there, and everybody's come with you and they think I'm nuts? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that is really where I'd like to finish. Because everybody's unique and special. Everybody has a gift to give, and one of the best gifts we can give is to support each other in exploring their unique energy. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that, that was just wonderful. Um, you'll notice that the way that Fiona's cells and mine have divided as regards shape is somewhat different. So in a moment I'm going to stand off the podium. We do have time for questions though, and we've got a roving microphone. Um, the very dapper Chris Kennedy has got the roving microphone. So what I'd like you to do is just catch his attention or mine and we'll get the microphone to you so that everybody can, um, everybody can hear your question. So have we got a question with which to begin? Sorry, I, I sort of briefly skipped over that, uh, and my apologies. Certainly that's something that, uh, if you'll uh, give me a few moments, I'll go right back to the beginning of the story, because it relates to an individual. Uh, I was a registrar in 1990, and we were rotated around the hospitals, and there was a lady who came in that was 70% uh, burnt, and she was 56 years old. Uh, I think how young that is now. And at the time, if those two, uh, two uh, added up to over 100, your chance of survival was uh, considered zero. And she had survived uh, the initial period of resuscitation and the initial period of skin grafting. But I felt as I watched her that she was falling between our fingers like sand. I was rotated out to the, uh, Sir Charles Garden Hospital, and it was not long before I became a consultant. And I was watching this every Saturday when I went in for the teaching round, and it was with increasing uh, frustration of, uh, that there was nothing I could do. And I was driving along and heard on the radio that Joanne Padlaneski and Professor John Masterton from Monash University had been to Boston and were growing skin cell sheets. I almost crashed the car and like, jumped out, oh, where's the phone, where's the phone? And I rang them at, at the Alfred and said, you've no idea who I am, but I'm a, a doctor in Perth and I think you can grow skin, I think you can save this patient we have. Uh, she has been here five months, we've got one donor site left, can I send you the donor site uh, of skin, with the uninjured skin? And they go, oh, what's your name again? <laughs> who are you? This completely crazy random phone call with all this garbage. I think you can do this. And so I slowed down and we talked it through. And they said, we've never done this so far after the event because the skin itself that is not injured, as I've told you, is profoundly affected. But they were fantastic and they were very uh, supportive. And so we, I went to the hospital administration and I asked for the funds in to send this, piece, uh, this last donor site to Melbourne. And so we went to Melbourne and they took three weeks and they grew thin cell sheets. That's the base technology from where we started. The, that had been first used in 1982 in Boston based on work by Howard Green in the late 70s. And they came back uh, to Perth with all these tissue culture flasks with pink fluid 
and we harvested them in the bone marrow laboratories at, at Royal Perth of significance because in the background was a very uh, equally crazy manic workaholic called Marie Stoner who, who I later saw, I had seen her working away through the night and I sort of poached her and we worked together for many years afterwards and so we put the skin sheets on the, the patient and she healed, she got out of intensive care she was off the ventilators and it, it was just extraordinary. It was just a real insight into this technology and how it could heal. The epidermis gives you life. She was no longer leaky sieve. She, was, she had a bacterial uh, uh, protection. But unfortunately, at seven months post-injury, when she was in uh, rehab phase, she was walking along in the burns unit one afternoon. On Wednesday afternoon, she died. She had an arrest and we couldn't resuscitate her. And she had a fungal infection in the heart because she'd had no skin for so long. She'd had all bacteria. Infection is our biggest problem in terms of you know, the infections come over in waves. We try and close down the wounds as we go forward. And so, as I've indicated earlier tonight, you can never walk away from that. And it was defined me. In, uh, I think of her now, the life she saved, you know? And so I think, right, we've got to learn from this. If that was done at five weeks, five days, it would have been a whole different story, not five months. So it became a little bit of an obsession, I'd have to say. I chased the funding to establish the lab in 1993. In ni- so then we, before, between 1993, we, we sent skin backwards and forwards to Melbourne. But I could see that we could do so much more with it. The three weeks was too long. People died in three weeks. You know, we couldn't wait three weeks. We had to work out how to do it quicker, how to change it, how to actually make it more functional, easier to use, and the whole list of things. And so by 93, I, Marie and I sat in a room and we put the papers, everything that had been written on culture skin, we managed to put on the floor of this room. You'd fill the whole room now. Uh, and we said, right, they do, in, in Boston, they do that quick. In Seattle, do they do that? In Wake Forest, they do this. In East Grinstead, where I'd come from, where I'd first seen it in London, just south of London, they do this. But we, can, we know that we can do this, this, and this. We'll make it quicker. Our first cab off the ramp was 10 days. And so I said, right, now that... And I said to Marie, unless you can do this in 10 days, it's not clinically useful for me, I'm not going to wait, we'll just carry on with surgery. So there on 10 days, and she walks, sheets. But then we noticed that the sheets that were were more fragile and with holes in them actually healed quicker. How does that happen? Didn't make sense. So we started doing the basic research behind it, understanding what was happening and where the cells were changing. And I could keep you here for days with this. But anyway, to cut a very long story short, I was in the operating room and we were trying to put it under blisters. We were putting it on in suspension because it seemed the more immature we went, the better it went. And it was messy and it was difficult. And I sat down and we operate in 34 degree heat and the lab's all air conditioned. So yeah, we, we spent a lot of time in the lab and Marie in the theatre looking at our problems that I had, problems she had, sort of trying to work it all out. And I went into the lab in the air-conditioned comfort, sort of rise my eyebrows, and said, we've got to do this quicker, we should just spray this stuff on. And we kind of stopped and looked at each other. Huh, now there's a thought. And so off we went to, uh, to the pharmacy and the art shop. We got airbrushing, throat spray, nail spray, hairspray, any spray you can find. And we got a nozzle on an Italian mouth freshener that actually, we became nozzle experts on the vortexing and the apertures. 
and we got this nozzle and you could clip it onto a standard 5mm syringe. If we put it on a 2mm syringe and push the cells through, we could kill them all because of the pressure differentials. Put it on a 5 or 10, then 90% plus for the cells coming through would survive. And so we had lots of boxes of mouth freshening with all the lids taken off. But like we've got a serious problem in the lab. And so when we, our first, our first um, uh, fellow in 1996 was a guy called Remo Papini who came from Birmingham. In fact, and I said, with a name like that, you've got to be able to speak Italian. Can you get them on the phone and say, we just want the nozzles, we don't want the bottles of mouth freshener, please? And so that's where it came from. And so we've been spraying skin cells on uh, since 1995. So, sorry, that was indulged me in that sort of story. <laughs> but it's still in progress. I think down the back here. And it's very simple, and it can change lives. And the scar that you wear for life. And so can absolutely meticulous attention to detail. And meticulous debriding is, as you heard, that's what they were doing. Every piece of tissue that is dead, that's not going to survive... Is if it stays on the body, is going to be a spot where infection can get in. And so you need to remove all that dead tissue. And while someone's in sleep in intensive care, it's a perfect opportunity to do so without pain. And so that meticulous attention always, getting the, doing it in an atraumatic way, which is why the grease. Grease gets to salvage what's there that can survive, but remove everything that can't, keeping it clean, keeping it as clean as a whistle to get, make sure that the infection risk is controlled and kept to a minimum. And that's what they would have been doing. And that's absolute pivotal. You know, we, uh, the dead tissue is just impossible to leave and survive with. And so they, she was very fortunate that she was treated in such a, an intense way. Do we have some other questions? Oh, sorry, down, down here. Um, oh, you have to run now. <laughs> Chris, is, Chris is well shod to run up here. He's got his <laughs> joggers on. <laughs> um, in regards to spraying skin again, and more specifically third degree burns, do you believe it will ever be possible to eliminate the skin grafting process? That's a really interesting question because uh, the skin is in layers and what we spray on is this, the cells from the dermal epidermal junction. So the cells that are replicating all the time that are replacing our surface are predominantly epidermal cells that will be completely continually shed. And so they give us that waterproof layer. But underneath is the dermis. And as one of my colleagues from the US says, epidermis is life. The epidermis that makes you waterproof will give you will, is life. But the dermis... What's underneath is quality of life. That gives you toughness, your elasticity. And, and it, of course, it's different on all the different body sites. So when we, uh, we look at the dermis and the epidermis, it's a fascinating story. Because in the MIT in the 1970s, there were two people. There was John Burke and there was Colin Green. And they were friends and they were working on the dermis and the epidermis and they fell out. And the epidermis and dermis got developed in isolation. And the epidermis story I've told you. And the dermis is a fascinating product that, the, that is still the best in the world at this point. is called Integra, which is from John Burke, which is from MIT. He was the team leader. Uh, and it is collagen coated with glycosaminoglycans. But the fascinating thing about it is they make it through a felting procedure. And if the bubble th gas through it too quickly and the holes are too big, 
greater than 100 microns, or if it's too small, less than 60 microns, you can put this stuff on a burn, full thickness burn, and it's just, it's just scars. But if it's between 60 and 80 microns, the cells from the base of the wound grow into it, and they express the phenotype. The cells are guided to become dermis and blood vessels. And so what you see on the microscope is tissue-guided regeneration. It's the first step down the solution of what you're asking. Can we actually eliminate scarring in full thickness burns? And so by putting the, the, this integrate on the wound, the cells grow into it, and it has a plastic layer on top, a silicon layer on top, and after three weeks you pull the silicon off, and then you put the epidermis on. It's technically really hard to use, it's terribly expensive, and so, but when it works, it works exquisitely, but it's really demanding. We've then stood back from this and said, right, when you graze yourself, your cells for the epidermis come from your, the hair follicles, the sweat glands, but little bits and pieces that are retained in the deeper aspects of your skin. So what would happen if we took the cells from that dermal epidermal junction, it's like a bread and butter sandwich, you split the two pieces apart and scrape the butter off, and put that butter, the cells, underneath on the wound. Where we're, so we've put them underneath, we've put the integra on top, and they have migrated through and pushed off the silicon. Tissue-guided regeneration of now a three-dimensional skin. We have only done that, I've only done that in an animal model to this point. But it is, we're moving closer. And trying to understand that interaction between the scaffold and the cells is a huge amount of work being done in, in Adelaide, New South Wales, Wake Forest, and in Boston at the moment. But then comes the drive to say, okay, and how do we make it normal in that site? Because the Integra that we put on, we put it on eyelids and we put it on the palm of the hand, the same thing, but it changes. It changes to palm of the hand and eyelid. So there's more to it than meets the eye. But it's a very, very important question. Thank you. Uh, do we have any further questions? Uh, yes, down here. that uh, it was this International Women's Day 100 years uh, on last week and I've been asked this question a lot last week and I feel very much I have to answer as honestly as I can and so it comes down to if you want your cake and eat it which I think I'm very fortunate in doing so then there is no substitute for hard work when I look at the people that have inspired me I kick in with my parents first and uh, they've taught me how to work hard. I think of that patients I've treated that have taught me to work harder. I think about some of the people that I've worked for, colleagues like Harold McComb, who always would think about how, to, how he could repair that cleft lip and that baby better tomorrow. Equates to work harder. So I think we can have a family and a career without a doubt. But we have to understand that with that, brings, you know, we have to work hard and be organised and, and actually understand that you make compromises 
And the deal is to make compromises, to understand that those compromises should not compromise those around you. And they should be reappraised, 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 and you need a, a level of flexibility as the kids grow and they change, and their demands change. And so I, I was very surprised recently when my daughter, who was a med student now, she's a second year out, came home and said, we had a careers talk today. Oh, yeah. She says, yeah, this guy told us that we couldn't be surgeons if we were women because it wasn't conducive to having family. And I just like, what? I said, did he know you were in the room? And, uh, yeah. and she goes, yeah, yeah. Because it's kind of obvious, you know, there's a bit of family resemblance. And I was sort of, I said, in this day and age, somebody's walked into a, a group of med students. I was one of 12 in my career. She's 50, one of 52% in hers. Yeah, which I think the year is 280. Oh, yeah. He's walked into this room and he's told you girls that a surgical career is not compatible with a family. What did you say? Says me. She goes, oh, I didn't have to say anything. All my friends were in there like 10 men. <laughs> yeah. And I think it is a, a, a situation where I'm asked, should we make surgery a career for women? I said, we, make, should, we should make surgery a career for people. We should understand that both mothers and fathers have a role here. We should understand that if people are happy, that they actually give more, that they will contribute better, and that they will function better. So really, we've uh, try I'm skirting the issue, aren't I? What advice would I give? Believe in yourself. But understand that that belief, in behind that belief, there is no substitute for hard work. That's the boring side. <laughs> <laughs>